Hello, everybody. <laughs> New podcast. I'm with uh, Raymar. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Raymar Tirado, and I am a web explorer slash no-code builder. Hell yeah. I love when people go like un- unconventional. I've been doing uh, Web Stuff Maker for uh, almost like a year and a half. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I never know what to call myself. You know, I'm just a... I, I think my bio on Twitter says I have no idea what I'm doing, but I pretend well. That's, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, because at this point, who knows, right? Yeah, I mean, everything's changing so fast. Uh, I actually, I've got about seven years experience in WordPress, maybe eight now, and uh, in a couple years uh, working with Webflow and some other no-code tools. And so just uh, enjoying watching the space evolve a little bit, you know? Yeah, it's it's really it's really great. Uh, shout out to WordPress. I know I know uh, people think it's a it's a dumb meme that I that I keep pushing, but I really really appreciate that that platform. I think it's a it's an amazing platform, and people don't give it credit enough because when you're moving from like uh, you know like the simple, I'm making a little site with a with a contact form, to actually you know custom post types and they're like you know like the heavy stuff, like. It was either doing it in WordPress or actually like doing full web development, right? And so uh, the easiness in, in which you can go into like really deep, like uh, computational things within WordPress, like in such an ease, I don't know. I think it's, a, it's such an under, underappreciated platform. Yeah, unfortunately, um, it's funny because I'm moving everything away from WordPress. Um, I feel like it's a uh, obsolete platform in the making. Wow. I think it's like uh I use um I use the analogy of like BlackBerry and iOS. Um and I, I think Webflow is like iOS and WordPress is BlackBerry. Uh and right now everyone thinks it's the best in the business because of the extensibility and you can do so much with it, but um I mean it, it's got so many dependencies. It's uh, the only thing, you know, lacking right now, I think, in the Webflow space is there's no app store, you know, and so they don't have the plugin marketplace like WordPress does. And most of the functionality, most of the functionality of WordPress comes from the plugins. And so as soon as soon as Webflow opens that up, which is rumored to be happening in the next, you know, couple years, let's say, I don't want to put a time on it, but I've I've heard rumors that it's being worked on and that it could be as as soon as uh, 12 to 18 months. But who knows? Who knows, right? Um, so when that happens, I think again, like BlackBerry to iPhone. You know, when BlackBerry was around and iPhone first came out, everybody understood that iPhone was just a toy, and the BlackBerry was uh, the enterprise level tool that we were going to use, and that it was you know just there to stay. And then iPhone opened up the uh, the App Store, and everything changed. And we know we know how that story played out. And so I think that is going to happen in the web development game, and. As, as powerful as I think WordPress is, and as much as it helped me grow my career, I uh, I just don't see it being able to keep up as a modern piece of software. Um, what they've done with Gutenberg oh, no, over this last couple of years, um, just every, everything is it's a mess. Even even the it's ba- it's got to maintain backwards compatibility, and so it, I I just I think they're going to have a really hard time. Um, the other, the other biggest issue with WordPress is um, data exportability and data, 
you know, like moving your data between Absolutely. platforms is very difficult. WordPress data formatting is not built to talk to other things. And so, yeah, they have the REST API and you can do things. Actually, what I see WordPress evolving into is like a distributed backend using that REST API where people will spin up other front ends. So I see it becoming almost like a headless CMS if it's going to evolve in any real capacity that that something like that will have to happen. Um, and you'll use the back end for e-commerce and for CMS. But on the front end, you'll still use some other kind of tool to build the interface, um, which is what you see, like these oxygen builders and some of these other themes building. But yeah, I don't know. It's 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 convoluted. Yeah. And a lot of people are doing that. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I know I, I had. I had that 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 the webflow plugin conversation so many times, and I really can't see a way for uh, webflow to survive once um, once they they launch something like this. And I'll explain because basically, if if we if we're going like deep into technical yeah, stuff uh, in this no in in this no code uh, uh, podcast, lol. Um, it's basically a React, like a really big React app, right? Like, I mean, Webflow. And so, uh, or, or another JavaScript framework, who knows? And, and honestly, who cares? But uh, the point that I'm trying to make is that once um, there are enough, like, third-party um, solutions, What's stopping somebody from from grabbing just React and building something something that actually I, I think is going to be like the next level for uh, no code stuff is a um, like a UI as a service like it's something that is so bare bones and the the only function that it has is presenting like content. Yeah, that's that's what that's what Webflow is going to become. I, that's why I think you're missing the point. I think Webflow becomes that, and every SaaS company is just going to plug their data into the back end, and those plugins won't be functionality plugins; they'll be infrastructure plugins. And so you'll just be plugging the API into Webflow's front end builder. So what Webflow has discovered is the ability to visually abstract HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and allow people without the coding abilities to write that. And so yeah. I agree. I agree with exactly what you said: is that all these SaaS companies will just open up a plugin and all that would allow you to do is to put the webflow webflow front end builder on top of their data set and from there you can do whatever you want yeah but but that means but that means for webflow uh, is is basically going to become like shopify right and i don't think they'd want that like it's that's 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 the only thing that i i think that's going to be i don't want to be dramatic and say downfall but I think that that's going to be like the the big issue is I I don't think they do, they want to be like Shopify. I think they want to replace Shopify. They want to replace Shop. They want to become. Oh no, they're never they're never going to replace Shopify. Shopify is, is is too dumb of a product. Like even for developers, it's too dumb. You you using like uh, like what you using like like liquid stuff, which is like. You can you can teach like a twelve year old like yeah yeah and that's I don't mean like uh you know because there's always going to be competitors in the e commerce space you know and so there'll be multiples sure I, what I meant by that is they want to be at a scale where you know from a commerce standpoint they could be competitive with Shopify they're just getting into e commerce you know they're just kind of slowly rolling it out it's not very robust honestly that's uh probably one of their biggest um, flaws right now is the strength of e commerce it's a really powerful tool yeah. for building front end static sites. 
Uh, and then obviously adding some functionality with like a Zapier and a member stack and an Airtable. Um, it kind of becomes a distributed backend. But once you, again, with their API, allow people to plug in whatever database and functionality they want, uh, you could see where Webflow essentially just becomes a tool for anyone to build a front end on, let's say, a, a Salesforce backend, right? So you could have your Salesforce backend database feeding Webflow the data. And then I go into Webflow and I just design what I want that experience to look like. Um, I have my user control over top of that and it feeds directly to my system. So I don't need to build software anymore. Salesforce becomes my software or even Shopify, for instance, you know, you could feed a Shopify API into it and just design your front end and Webflow and, yeah. and still use the back end of any SaaS product. Um, I think that is, is a hundred percent where they're headed and that's why people get really excited. Um, one of my biggest concerns right now with the no code space is that people are overly excited and most people who are in the space have just recently discovered how to build websites. And in that context, it's not that exciting because, you know, the stuff people are getting excited about being able to do with no code, you could do with WordPress 10 years ago, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. my biggest concern is that people overhype it and then, you know, scare people off like yourself, maybe who is looking at it and saying, hey, I see you guys getting excited, but I don't see delivering the, the goods. And then people get turned off with no code. And, you know, two years from now when it is ready, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, that's just a toy, you know? Oh, no, I'm, I'm completely fine with that. And, yeah, absolutely. Right now, uh, I would say that, uh, like, um, optic-wise, like, optics-wise, the no-code community, especially on Twitter, comes off really as, like, uh, people tinkering with, like, Arduino kind, kind, of, kind of vibes. To it, I'm just building this little robot who can uh, throw a little ball around the room, and I made it just because I can, and it's fine, uh, you know, more power to them. But I really think that uh, the innovation, it's not, it's not going to come from from that space at all. And so whatever they, whatever that space does, or doesn't, doesn't all get hyped about it, it it's like uh, it's inconsequential. I don't. I don't, I mean, at first when I really got into this, like, uh, also, almost like a year ago, when I was just like, you know, uh, snooping around MakerPad and such, um, the thing that I was seeing that was lacking again and again, it was like the product uh, thinking about this. Like, I understand that you have like this really awesome ability to create uh, technical stuff really fast, which is, which is amazing, yeah? But uh, on the other hand, uh, it's, uh, and I just retweeted like yesterday, something like that, like somebody actually made a to-do list with Webflow, which is peak junior developer uh, tutorial hell type stuff. And I was like, no, really? That's, that's where we're at right now. We're making uh, to-do lists and uh, to-do apps. It seems it seems like uh, it's really people who don't understand like product at the, at a basic level, they're just gonna keep tinkering and they're just gonna move on to whatever uh, other hype comes along. So uh, I don't think they they're they're too much. Yeah, but that's where I think that's where I think you're 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 assuming that because of the current state is not where it needs to be, that it won't eventually get there, right? Like anytime somebody learns to write code. 
what's the first app they learn is to build a to-do app, yeah. right? It's part of the process of understanding the functionality of creating a little CRUD app or building a basic little interactive element online, right? And so this is where I say, no, like, even if you go down my Twitter feed, you'll see a video that says no code is not there yet. Yeah. Um, what it what no code does is it describes the people who are in the space building currently mm-hmm. right which which means that it's the it's folks that have maybe always had a technical limitation to building on the web because of their lack of ability to write code who are now being exposed to these opportunities and sure it seems like a trinket right it seems like a toy it's a novelty right now because nobody's yeah. building scalable architecture nobody's building real solid software you know but that's not the point here the point here is to lower the barrier to entry to people who can start playing and tinkering. And as this grows, as this evolves over the next couple of years, you're going to see the complexity of what people are building scaling significantly. Um, for instance, we are building right now, we have a, a YouTube clone that we built called nocode.video. And yeah. I'm working with, I'm working with uh, a, 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 some JavaScript developers on the back end. Mm-hmm. And we're going to release the functionality to allow people to... Uh, follow tags, follow, uh, subscribe to users and save videos as well as update their own videos and sell courses. And then we're going to give that whole infrastructure away, right? So like you'll be able to now build a YouTube clone on your own that gives you a majority of the functionality of what YouTube does. Obviously, we won't be doing video hosting because that's, you know, let, yeah. let Vimeo and YouTube take care of that. We don't need to hand, handle the infrastructure. But, sure. uh, you know, and so to be able to give people products like that, and to give them the little libraries to be able to add that kind of content to a site, uh, again, it doesn't it's, it it doesn't seem like transformational right now. But when you think about like how that type of product development will evolve, where you could just hand people complete chunks of 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 a software stack, you know, yeah. And in the process, in the process, like you know, you, you create an asset. Like I'm learning a ton, uh, you know, and and you have full physical control of, of that in a way that I could never have in WordPress, right? Like I could never build something like that in WordPress without a huge development team. Mm, I don't know. Uh, maybe, but uh, no, but, but that, that's just the point. I, I, I see, I see what you're getting now. The, the concerns that I have are very much um, the closed sourced uh, concern. And that's yeah. why I keep sticking, sticking to WordPress yes. in, in, the, in specifically that regard. Because yeah. it doesn't matter how amazing the stuff that you are doing, Sako is doing also, uh, also those, you know, uh, MakerPad, they're, they're, they have the, the lab library of components, right? And they want, I mean, they're calling it a library of components, but it's a bunch of proprietary uh, things that are, that are hooked together. And eventually, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're just basically at best renting, yeah. right? Because it's not even like a public space. It's just absolutely private space that you are at best renting with zero guarantee of ownership like ever. Yeah. And so how, how do you see that, that problem? Because I, I think it's a real, real issue. And I wish that there was a way for us as people in this no-code space, that will be able to uh, bring over more developers and bring people to create like open source projects, cloning Zapier. I wanna, I wanna do like an open source Zapier, and I wanna do an open source uh, uh, parabola and all that stuff. 
uh, how, like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I struggled with this for a while, actually, especially coming from WordPress, where everything is essentially open source under some kind of, you know, yeah. uh, some kind of license. But what I what I finally settled on was I never owned anything in WordPress either. Like, technically, I owned my installation, but I have to pay for, you know, hosting from WP Engine. And then I have 20 plugins and, you know, I got to rent from them every year. So if I want to have like, for instance, I got Optin Monster or Gravity Forms or even the Yoast SEO plugin or any of these things, when you want premium level access, you have to rent. You're paying a subscription. Right. And so and, and to the and to somebody who's really strong technically, maybe owning the code base makes sense for them because they know what to do with it. They could go stand up their own servers. They can optimize everything, you know, from top to bottom. But again, what we're talking about is not appealing to the technical user. We're talking about appealing to the non-technical user. And in, in, in that case, they're always going to be renting, right? Even WooCommerce, right? You want to do commerce on Webflow or on WordPress. You have to pay an annual fee to have these plugins and they nickel and dime you on every little plugin. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. terrible, right? And so you don't ever own that either. If you say, hey, I can take my open source code over here. Sure. But you can't use any of the functionality that you've added on with these plugins. And so at, at the end of the day, you're still renting, even though the, the code is open source. The only difference that you have in open source is that, that you have a huge contributor base. And that's where I think, you know, you might run into some limitations um, in, in the no code space. And, and, and I'm not even sure those are real limitations because I haven't really thought that through. But th that would be the only place where I, I could see, you know, when you have uh, a global community of open source developers building on the product, you have the you have the potential for something to, to you know, to evolve more features and to kind of do more. But you also get clutter, right? You get you get Android versus Apple, right? Where you may have 50 plugins that do the exact same thing. And now I got to go through and figure out which one of those is the safest or the best or whatever versus having five and knowing that knowing that each of them is perfect, you know? Yeah. And, and so that would be my answer to the, um, to the open source question is that in theory, what you say is a hundred percent true, but in practice at every level, you still have to pay the VIG for these services. Yeah, because I, I'll, I'll tell you why. Why I was, I think it's like a really big concern. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, like a couple of years ago, um, somebody was reading through the um, React uh, terms. Yeah, and basically, what they said. Now, it it kind of died down because I don't know because you know nobody cares now. But uh, it's still like that. I mean, probably if Facebook wanted, like uh, React was was created by by uh, engin some engineers in uh, Facebook, and so if Facebook really wanted, you would just like be going to Airbnb and saying, "Listen, guys, sorry, we own you now," and they could like say nothing, which is insane. And when you're talking like a small scale people, like uh, I don't know, uh, me making uh, a, uh, a course selling site or me making, I don't know, some sort of uh, selling like white label commercial apps in uh, Glide for little small businesses around my area or even internationally. That's fine. But what's going to happen with, when the first unicorn uh, 
when, when we get like the first no-code unicorn and it's probably going to be on bubble or something but uh again and 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 that's why i think they've they've, they've been very communicative uh about uh saying uh, we understand that uh uh We'll 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 be like we'll be cool about it, and we'll release the code. And if you need the code, uh, we'll help you go, uh, go through that. But what happens like by no not not everybody is like Bubble, right? And so, what happens when one of these companies get really bullish on their proprietary software, and you're you're you're, you're trying to scale? I don't know. It seems scary. They rebuild it. They rebuild it. I mean, that's exactly what, like, even even with WordPress, like, let's say you built some, you know, social community using BB Press and whatever other conglomeration of plugins you want to put in there, right? Sure. You know, once you once you hit a certain point, like, you're gonna need if if it's gonna be that successful, like, you're gonna need to come in and bring in a a development team and scale it properly, like like a real piece of software. And so same thing with no code. The, the, the idea about no code is not that you're going to build infinitely scalable software and that it's going to be viable on this platform the entire time. You know, like we ran into that even just with this no code video site. Like we, we did some calculations and we're like, shit, if we end up with 100 users or 500 users, we're going to end up on an enterprise level Zapier plan like in a month, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so th that's that those are real concerns. But what happens is once you validate the project, then it's more likely that you could bring in a dev team and, and you don't have to explain what to build. You just say, hey, make this scalable, make this structural, you know, and that the ability for just Joe Schmo to come in and get to that point is huge, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not about building the next unicorn inside of no code, which I think will happen in the next five years, yeah, for right? Sure. For sure. Um, but it might be something like a maker pad where it's more service based. It's more community based, right? It's not necessarily that the technology is, is, is insignificant. I see you talking about this sometimes in your post, right? It's, it's not about the tech who cares if it's built with code or without code. All that matters is, does it solve a problem for the end user? Absolutely. And when you can have more people creating those solutions, you're, you're just going to end up with better solutions at some point, regardless of if you have to rebuild it, a year into the life of the business or two years into the product because the tech stack isn't holding up, you know, those are good problems to have versus hiring a dev team and spending $50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars on a piece of software uh, before you even get to market. And then thinking, well, now I've got this piece of software that will scale, but no users and no story and no community around it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, yeah. I'm, I'm again, I have my reservations. Uh... But since I've lost, like I've, I've been very open about this, I've lost all technical interest in, in whatever happens in the no code uh, tool. Uh, my concerns are very, very much focused uh, on, on product. And uh, because I think that's, uh, again, very lacking. And I think that uh, a lot of people are getting discouraged because they just make something uh, that has no, like, like, like it's not solving like a real problem. Or uh, they didn't communicate, or even if it even if it is, they don't communicate the right way to the uh, to the people that should be, should be communicating this. And there's a lot of like variables that have nothing to do with the whatever the, the technical thing that you're making that uh, I think they need to be addressed. Like for uh, people uh, like you say, like a Joe Schmo with uh, like zero technical uh, abilities. And you just want to have, and you just like have like a very uh, specific idea of something that he wants to make, and then uh, 
allow him to have like a, a framework uh, for him to process the idea into something that can be called a product rather than just a, like a no code build. Because I think yeah. that that's, that's a very, that's like the distinction that people should be making. Like people are making no code builds, which is awesome, but they're not products. Yeah. And I would take that one step further and say the product is a lot less important than it used to be either. Because again, the, the end user just expects a piece of technology to work. Right. Yeah. And not only that, but they expect it to be stupid, simple anymore. Right. And so, you know, what that means then is that your goal as an individual who's creating a product is to find and build a community and then somehow solve, you know, a problem, a real world problem that they're having. And th again, those users don't care about the technical end of it. They just expect that stuff to work. What they're more interested in is what is the vision? What is the problem we're solving? And how does their involvement contribute to that effort? And that's where um, lowering the barrier of entry to give more people the opportunity to look to solve some of those problems. I mean, this this could be the same thing as in marketing, right? I see people a lot talking about, uh, even in this no-code space, right? I see people kind of jumping in and saying, start building your list and, you know, start your content strategy and start yeah. marketing. And it's like, no, just you don't need to build a, an email list with a thousand people before you have a product. Like maybe it's okay to start building a list ahead of time because you want to have some momentum when you go to launch. Sure. But you know, like you don't need a landing page and you don't need the hype for some corny little shit website, you know? So it's like figure out the problem you're going to solve first, make sure people want that problem solved second. And, and then, you know, like maybe you start thinking about the value proposition and then you can start marketing something, you know, so the same problem exists in almost every industry. It's that the problem is it, the digital world is just becoming saturated. Everyone wants to play, right? Every small business, every nonprofit, every creative person on the planet is now thinking like, well, shit, my graphic design skills don't do crap anymore. If all I'm doing is playing inside of Illustrator, right? So yeah. now I got to get into Figma. I got to get into Sketch. I got to get into Webflow. Uh, you know, if, if, I'm a, if I'm a maker, you know, I got to find a way to get my products online or build something. And so that's where we're seeing just a, a huge influx of people who want to build, who want to create, who want to make online. And I go back to the point I made that like, just because they're discovering it now doesn't mean that what they're discovering is anything novel. But if you just figured out how to build a website, then it feels amazing to build a website. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. E even though for 10 years you could do this stuff in WordPress. Mm hmm. So that's where my concern comes in is that, hey, we've got to look deeper at this. It can't just be, look how excited I am about building this website because that's what's going to turn people away. We've got to show people that the real problem to solve is building community, making connections, you know, and then finding real world problems to address using their new skills. And, and once that conversation starts taking place, then I think, you know, you'll start to see a, a kind of a shift in the, in the paradigm. And I think really the model is um, BuildBox. Really, you know, have you seen that? Oh, the video, the video game uh, tool. Yeah, I haven't played much with it, but yeah, it looks it looks pretty pretty interesting. That is like a supreme like experience. You're like, you should you should go just just to feel like the first onboarding that they do. Yeah, it's it's so good. It's so good. And I'm and, and I have I'm 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 here at the podcast. I have a quest, and my quest is to talk with the what's what's his name, 
Trey, sure, Trey Smith, I think, and he's the he's the founder, and uh, and and, and he, he's been like forever in this thing, and I don't know, you, you should ch- check out his videos. He's been like CEO of, and founder of the company for like seven eight years, and you see like videos he made like like right now in 2020, and he seems so psyched about his product. Which is amazing. I really, I really, I really enjoy this guy, and, yeah. and it seems like a really interesting guy to see because everything, like when he talks, he, he, he like almost always talking about his community, about uh, how uh, approachable and easy the product is, and how it, it, it does it works for you rather than you working in the program. And what are the value that you're gonna get out? And that's why I think, and that's why I, I I'm I'm really really into uh, his videos because you can see you can you can learn so much about product and how to reach the people that you're trying to reach and the language that he uses. I think it's a really 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 uh, uh, good way for every uh, maker out there uh, to go and just see a couple of videos of him. Yeah, like doing demos and stuff. But but hang on, be, be, before you jump into your next question, this is a good example to just point. Like, if you look at what people are building with this tool, like you're going to find real primitive games, right? Nobody's building the next PlayStation console game on Buildbox yet, right? Yeah. That doesn't mean that two years from now they won't. So this this it's the same thing with Webflow, right? This is where I think you sure. you, you you see it but you miss it, right? Like. And, and what you're doing is I think you're judging no code based on like the low level users, uh, no code on, on like the entry level users versus looking at the people who are seeing it as as the build box of the world. Right. As the you know, like if you listen to Vlad and you listen to his philosophy, um, Vlad is a CEO of mm-hmm. Webflow. Um, and, and, and so if you look and compare that, like it's it's kind of the same thing where you're just starting to see the power of these tools potentially be put into people's hands. And I think it's a little unfair to judge, you know, the current state of the products being built uh, rather than the potential of what might be built as these products evolve. Uh, and that's where, again, I think the value is. Um, and so just, you know, just this, the build box, anal- build box analogy is, is a good place to just say, hey, you know, like I bet if I looked at what people are building in here, you know, you're not going to find Call of Duty, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. But they're still making millions. Like it's it's ridiculous the amount of money of like successful games. Sure. Made. But but that's beside the point. I really am. I'm, I'm, I mean, like I'm, I wouldn't say like that. I'm more judging people. I'm really rooting for people. Like I really wish. And there's like there's like people in the community. And people who hang around those, you know, around the hashtag, that I really would like to see, like, you know, hit like ten billion, like sure. for real, like really. They're so dedicated for to this stuff, and you know, and they're grinding and grinding, and I see them like every day, and I really, I really wish that they could hit it big. Yeah. But but I on the other on the other hand, I can see the reality that that the the more abstract stuff. Like the product stuff, it's something they rather just almost like uh, they're almost like avoiding it, like almost like not even going there because it's so it's so it's so different than the technical challenge of, of connecting things to Webflow. Well, the- uh, that I think that they 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 not seeing how 
how much they're Well, losing. the irony of the no-code space is that all of the top startups are built with a full stack dev team, right? So like the, yeah. you know, some of the biggest apps, look at JetBoost, you know, it's uh, Chris Spaggs and he's doing, he just got uh, investment, um, I forget from Tiny, Tiny, Tiny Capital or um, one of those groups. Um, but right. it's a, it's a JavaScript plugin for Webflow, you know, they don't even have a web, a plugin marketplace yet. And people are building plugins. Look at what uh, FinSuite is doing. They just released Suite JS, which is a JavaScript library for Webflow. Uh, MemberStack. Yeah. MemberStack is a, a company that's growing on top of uh, Webflow, again, with full dev team, right? MemberStack doesn't eat their own dog food in, a, in the language. They're not using their own membership software. They've got a full, you know, full full sure. product built on top of it and so i i guess maybe it's just I, I just keep going back to it's just too early and nobody's building real products with no code yet like real solid platforms they're experimenting you know with what will come and i think the real innovators will be the companies that again build the ecosystem around that and they will create the through that you know over the next couple of years as that ecosystem evolves that's when you'll start to see you know, the products evolve and, and kind of do, you know, bigger businesses inside of that no code space. Um, I, I just think we're really early, you know, like really early. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of, um, of, of like, um, I would say like, like light cycle, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, like we're, we're like, it's not even we're in the basement that right? we haven't even broke the surface. Yeah, we're in the basement of the, we're in the no code basement. Yeah, it's really crazy because um, uh, there's this guy that, that I also want to want to bring on uh, who is uh, he's a developer, right? He has like a YouTube channel. Uh, he's, he's really, really a funny guy. And so now he's really hyping people to get into uh, building Shopify, Shopify mm. games. And they're like, uh, and he's like, guys, this is easy. This is like stupid easy. And that's the only reason you should get into it because people are like desperate for, for yeah. shops. This is not like super high, you know, uh, algorithmic technical abilities. You don't need Node.js. You don't need any of that. You need like really simple skills. You need to know how to, you know, put your, your CSS and your HTML right, a little bit liquid here and there. And that's it. You're you're like a Shopify right. developer. Like, who cares that you don't know? Like, build React stuff, and um, and he really was talking about how how this is like uh, when people started to make like uh, WordPress themes, mm -hmm. and like how people during the years have, have been selling like these uh, almost like right now they're like super corny and generic and bloated. Uh, WordPress themes, but they made like millions on Correct. top of them because people keep keep buying and buying, and so that's 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 perhaps is the uh, is the big kicker. I I I suppose like building a like being like a sort of enabler into the into the world by building like consumer level products, uh, almost like consumer level no code products. I have a real similar feeling as I watched this no code space evolve than I did like seven or 10 years ago when I was watching the Joomla Drupal WordPress battle take place. Right. 
And I remember having conversations back then, and I I was a a WordPress fan, and I picked WordPress. I I won that that game, but I didn't get into the community, right? But I I remember talking to people, and they were like, "No, it's Joomla, it's Drupal," and some of them were a little more technical, and and some of them just liked the the ecosystem. Yeah. But what I saw in WordPress was the availability of plugins, the open source nature, and the community that was growing around it. And the community is what made WordPress what it is today, right? And so what I see growing in the same same way is this no code community. And I wish I could go back 10 years and plug in like I am now to the WordPress world, because who knows where I would have been, what kind of plugin I might have launched, you know, like what 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 you could do riding that wave. And so just going back to the early nature of this and the feeling, I think that the no code space is just kind of there where we haven't even seen the Joomla or the Drupals of the no code space yet. There's really just kind of one or two players. There's bubble and there's Webflow, and there's a couple others playing around the edges, but those are kind of the two monsters. Right. And yeah, that's why I'm so hyped for, for builder. I think. Oh, have you seen builder? Have, are you in the beta? Uh, no, no, because, because psycho, uh, psycho won't let me in. You were supposed to give me like an invite or something. Mark, let me in. Come on. Yeah, Mark. Uh, if you want, yeah, if you want, I can connect you with Mark. I, I, I'm pretty uh, close with those oh, guys. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um. So I'll, 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 I'll forward you along. But again, I, I worry about the complexity of Builder. Builder is really complicated. Oh, dude, I um, had, I had, I, I mean, I had that better access to Clutch, and that's uh. Oh. Yeah, that's very like like it's it's so robust to the point that it's almost pointless that it's no code. Yeah, that's the same. I feel that way sometimes with Builder, where it's like there's so much here that like you still have to know everything about how code works, and you still have to know where to find it and how to word things and how to structure things. Um, and so I, I again, that's where I think like. That's where I think Webflow got right is the simplicity of the interface and the design components when they allow you to start adding, you know, logic and, and sequences and, and things to the back end. Yeah. Then they'll be a little more competitive. Whereas Bubble, you know, I don't, th- this is where I, and same thing with Builder. It's like, who's going to get it right? Is Webflow going to figure out how to build the back end things before Bubble figures out how to build the front end things? Yeah. You know, like, w- what's going to, you know, who's going to be the first to, to solve the problems? Because it's like, Webflow's figured out the, the, the static front end side. And Bubbles figured out, you know, how to build things on the back end. And Builder, you could build anything in Builder. Uh, it's like the stuff that we're talking about playing around with as 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 a back end in their early days is it's it's kind of crazy to see what you can do in there. But again, it's really intimidating to then build something responsive, or to build something beautiful, or to build something with an onboarding process that's seamless, which is what people expect. Yeah. And so just just because you can give people all the functionality in the world doesn't mean it's usable. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's going to be the, the challenge for all these all these companies is not just again not building the product. The product is just expected to work. It's does it work for me? Yeah, and that's crazy because um, sometimes when I deal with like with clients and uh, and deal with like uh, overall, um, yeah, I would say like clients and that that type of world. Um, when especially talking to um, like B two B companies then uh, they still there are some people who still expect a very uh, low bar in terms of usability, in terms of um, 
like yeah like user experience in general and i i i, I and i and i like always need to remind them listen when those people like leave their computers at the office they go and use facebook they go and mm. use instagram they use twitter and the gap of functionality and and experience and delight that you get from using like a bad product at work and then you go back home to facebook like mm-hmm. at some point you want to see like why can i have like the same experience that i'm having like in facebook at, at my my work tools and so that's that's how how much like i mean that's how like slack made it right because slack it's not a it's like a, like a like not a new thing i'll say i'm i'm old enough to remember um like chat rooms right you had to log into the little chat rooms and basically it looked like slack like i mean slack books looks like them like, a, sure. like even a, discord was yeah you know even so, way I mean, but even before discord it was called like irc i think yeah irc chat right right yeah right. and it's like like if you take a screenshot from irc and a screenshot from from slack just slack is like a prettier irc and so, but they all—they're all stealing from each other. You see, like Microsoft, what is it? Teams now, and yeah, and again, Slack stole from Discord, and it's—it's it's, uh that's that's how the game works. Unfortunately, um, the experience, like the fact that I can put like emojis and, and, and gifs or gifs or whatever you say that word um, in Slack, and I have like little, you know, like little UI nudges and stuff. That's what allowing uh slack to win well but that's why i think webflow is going to win right because think about okay so why did facebook beat wordpress because wordpress was out before facebook yeah so you know and 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 if you think about it at its core functionality it's the same thing they're trying to do but why did Mm -hmm. facebook win facebook won because it was easy right you didn't need to set up your servers you didn't need to host technical stuff you know like you didn't need to have any depend you just post the image post a video, you know, and share it with your friends. Right. Yeah. And then make it lightning fast. And that's so Facebook wins. And so if you go forward and you still think about like these platforms, nothing matters other than the ease of use for the end user and not just Mm -hmm. the end user who's going to create, but um, what you can build as an, as a user for your end users. Right. So two users away. Right. Like I need Mm -hmm. to be able to get into the software and build, but I need to be able to build something that's beautiful and easy to use for my users. Otherwise, I'm wasting my time because something else is going to come out and do exactly what I think I want to do. And they're going to make it easy and they're going to steal all my customers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've been talking with uh, because I'm also uh, I've been coding for 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 a couple of years. And so uh, when I talk to people, you know, who do like Gatsby and that kind of thing. Like I've actually been hearing more and more people who use like Bubble as like the full backend, and they'll just hook it up to uh, some uh, some little React side or little Gatsby side, uh, which is also React or that kind of thing, or like little static side generator, and they'll just code the front end. Uh, just just because just because they they can just uh, like connect. Webflow to uh, to Bubble because that, that that would be like the dream, right? And so um, and so, yeah. I mean, eventually the ability. 
But that's why I say, why just bubble? Why not every piece of software that has an API? You see I mean, what I'm saying? Could. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like Webflow is HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, which is the front end. It's the building blocks of the web. And yeah. and all these other SaaS companies have really robust backends with all the functionality you could ever dream of, right? HubSpot, Salesforce, like whatever, whatever, like name a SaaS, you know? Yeah. And they've all got an API because, you know, they want to feed to developers and let them build on their own terms. Well, now imagine, you know, Webflow gives me user authentication and lets me skin any of that back end. So, yeah, Bubble would be great, but Bubble's not interested in that. Bubble wants to build their own front end that makes it easy to do that. Right. And so the competition is not going to be who can plug two no code tools together. The competition is going to be who is going to be able to plug in this whole architecture of SaaS products that we have floating out in the world to a competent front end builder, which is where Webflow has an amazing advantage. Like, I don't know who has anything close to what Webflow can do from a front end standpoint, you know? Yeah. And, and so that's, that's why I'm excited about it. You know, like that, that that's what it boils down to is because I see that, that in the next year or two, maybe three, that I'm basically just going to be able to become a full stack front end designer for any piece of software on the market. And that gets me so excited, you know? Yeah. So basically the million dollar or like billion dollar company is going to be like a, like a connection layer between yep. between everything. Yep. The, re- the relationship layer, right? Yeah. I mean, think of it, like you said it before, an open source Zapier, well, you're going to have it. Everyone's just going to have an API and the open source connector will be your front end and you'll just have some kind of software that allows you to pull in data from one place. Look at what Parabola is doing already, you know, pulling yeah. in and merging data and, and sorting things and organizing that. And then oh, you feed it. That's an insanity. Yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's Python, but it's visual Python, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so... Again, imagine taking something like that, but building it natively inside of a tool that allows you to just manipulate all of the the blocks, all of the the visual components. And now you're getting real close to like making someone like me a full stack developer. Yeah. That's interesting because how front end developers like would, would compete like obviously obviously they can't compete because they're they're like very amazing engineers doing amazing work sure right but uh but we're talking averages right because because it's the market and nobody cares about like the market doesn't care about people like really really and so um <laughs> yeah the money is money right and money is, is yeah money. you're right you're 100 percent right yep uh so uh yeah i think it'd be really tough for people like Sometimes when, when uh, like a couple of years ago, I used to try to teach like uh, print designers to move to like to digital mm. and like mm-hmm. HTML, CSS, I was trying to like, it was more like for an experiment for me to, to deal with video and long content form, whatever. But the thing is that uh, people forget that uh, before the PDF, there was like actually people whose job were to prepare those files uh, for printing. Like, like mm-hmm. when you like do save as PDF, there was like a bunch of people. It was like their job to do that. And once Adobe um, just made the PDF format, all those jobs just like went away like that, like in a second. Like, oh, yeah. you, you mean I can click now save and I don't have to send it to the, those guys? Sure. But their jobs didn't disappear. That task of their job 
disappeared. You know, and th- that's why like people worry about is no code going to replace coders or developers, but you know, like it's just going to, it's going to, it's going to allow you to elevate a tier, right? So now I don't know very many developers who, who like translating a, a Figma file to a HTML, CSS doc, right? Like it's just not. Oh yeah. But that a lot of them do. Right. But as soon as, as soon as I can go in straight from Figma and deliver the HTML, CSS, now the developer can be freed up to work on more complicated tasks or more interesting things. And so, yeah, the question is, is he up to the task though? That's my, uh, that's, that's on them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's you, that's a function of, you know, just because, uh, again, so looking back when the, the car was evolving and, and Henry Ford said, Hey, let's put a car in every driveway. And the blacksmith sure. was still sitting there pounding horseshoes, you know, was there still a need for blacksmiths after that sure did they have to kind of change their model and move into a different industry and maybe become machinists or something like that sure you know and so as the market evolves you know and technology is formed like it just has to happen like if you think about the amount of people who used to be responsible for agriculture it was you know a significant portion it was more than 50 percent of the workforce now it's less than three percent of the workforce right Mm -hmm. and so things will just shift you know uh into a, a whole new spectrum and again, like maybe more people have the ability to create, but you don't necessarily need to be a computer science major or a, or a mathematician to, to, to be able to create. And that's where it gets really exciting. You know, it's like the number of people, like look at all the progress we've made so far with such a limited amount of people that can write code. You know, it's like 0.02% of the world can write code, one out of 400 or something like that. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and so just imagine what the internet might look like there's never been a time where it was financially feasible to scale a piece of software for 200 users, but we might find that like we might be coming up to that point where a small community could build their own software and run their whole operation and not need to worry about how do you become the the billion dollar unicorn. Maybe you just want a really cool way for your local community to interact. And that software only has to support a couple thousand users. Well, that's going to be viable now. You know, and that's beautiful. That's the, there's something about that that's just really amazing. That if that's not even an opportunity right now, because you have to have scalability and you have to have a million plus users or whatever it is, right, to make a piece of software viable. And so, just think about all those little niche products that never get built because there's no real business model to scale behind it, but that might still provide value to the world. Yeah, actually, that's that's super interesting that you say that because I was talking to somebody. And he mentioned a term, it's like really interesting, like hyper-local. Mm-hmm. Like just going, like maybe like the future is going hyper-local and just building like very, as you said, like very specialized, very tailored, specific, like digital like experiences for like very specific group of, of people uh, who are probably like very local. And so that's that's what they give them, like their special flavor, all the special needs that you need to solve with that software. Yeah. So now if you go back to, let's say, that no-code video site that I was telling you about where we're just going to give away that technical infrastructure and what where we hope to make money is servicing the, the nuances, right? So, yeah, you can go and you can clone the site and you could build your own YouTube clone and you could have you know, the functionality that you want and you could add more functionality, whatever, because yeah, locally you maybe need a solution, but maybe they can share technology across 85% of the the needs. Right. And so where the service industry will be born is, is kind of 
filling the nuance of those that 15%, you know, uh, customizing it for this little group or for that group or, you know, building these niches. If you think about even media, right, think about peer reviewed science journals, uh, but for the entire media. So now instead of having ABC, CBS, Fox News, whatever, CNN, you know, Mm -hmm. some big centralized news source, you have these really distributed local nodes that are niche based and representative of the actual community. and, And they have the same credibility and clout because they have the infrastructure now and it becomes viable for them to have that infrastructure. And so I see a a hundred percent things are going to start shrinking down. And, and I don't know if hyper local is the the right word, although it does fit because I think, I don't know how you describe like a, what a local community looks like online, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think you'll see that. I think you'll see, I think we're about to see, think about what the American revolution was for a physical place. What does the American Revolution look like online, right? What does it look like when you empower individuals to own their property rights in a global space and they take they take control of that? Because right now we're living under monarchs and oligarchs and tyrants, right? Facebook, Google, et cetera. Sure. And so wh- what happens when the people revolt and they say, no, we want to own our own infrastructure. We want to own the property. We want to own the land and we want to earn the earning potential off of that, right? And so- Again, going back to what does that American Revolution look like for the internet, where all the creators stand up and say, "We're going to claim the rights to our intellectual capital. You're no longer allowed to steal from us at scale." Mm-hmm. And that's we're on the precipice of that. I think people are trying to figure out how do you build the armies to fight that war. And it's not a black. It's not a real physical battle. It's a it's a battle of emotion. It's a battle of wallet. It's a battle of behavior. You know, it's a battle of 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 just regular people making decisions and 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 making choices. Uh, all the way down to where and how you spend your money, where and how you distribute information. And that's what this opens up in my mind. This no code space opens up that potential to where anybody can now play inside of that game. And that's what it's going to take to to unseed, you know, a, a Facebook or a Google down the road is a distributed engine, right? It's a, it's a technical, a digital America. And I only say America in the context of, you know, in history, I hope that that analogy is not being lost. Um. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, as a person who was born in South America and, um, and now I live in Israel, but, uh, but so yeah, mo- mostly my culture is like Western culture and specifically American culture for the most part. And so, yeah, when you say America in that specific context, I, I totally I understand. And I, yeah, um, and I, I mostly meet it in the context of you know the American Revolution and the separation from the British colony in the yeah. you know in, in the early eighteen hundreds, um, you know, and I think something like that is going to happen. It's going to be a requirement. Otherwise, we're all going to end up uh, under some fascist rule, right? We're already seeing you can't trust the media at any level. You can't trust large institutions at any level. This global mm-hmm. pandemic has already showed us that you know uh, we're not in a good position to trust you know anybody at scale. And so we have to reinstitute yeah. mechanisms for trusting and for distributing the ownership. The ownership is, is all centralized. Um, and so, so it's all question who owns like the servers, right? Eventually. Yeah. That's um, if you, there's a good book called uh, who owns the future by Jerron Lanier. And he talks about some of that stuff. He calls them siren servers. Um, 
And he talks about, you know, the problem that they've created, the incentives around information distribution, around advertising has led to problems with privacy, has led to problems with, you know, control. <clears throat> and now look what it's doing to us online as we start to deal with censorship and, uh, you know, all of the problems that we're seeing around privacy and monetization and, and trust. And so we really have to start niching down into those localized communities to figure out how do we exchange information amongst each other? How do we exchange value with each other in a way that enables the creators, not the platform? And how do we then take control of this intellectual capital that's being basically stolen from us at scale and used to monetize, to aggregate wealth for a, a tiny minority of companies in Silicon Valley? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's like really yeah. I mean, I mean that's a, like a, like a rabbit hole in itself, right? Yeah, that's that's a. <laughs> I'm writing a book on that right now. Um, oh wow! Really? I'm writing. I'm writing a book. It's called The Creator's Lie, and there's an F in parentheses and lie, so it's the creator's life, the creator lie, and the yeah. subtitle is how uh, how religion, politics, art, and sales shape the world around us. That's a that's a that's a big title right there. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah, I can absolutely understand that. I mean, uh, here and like my specific situation is that, um, you know, with uh, people who are um, more like Orthodox Jews and they have like a very, very um, cynical uh, view of the internet and just global communications in general. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, the interesting thing, uh, like in, in the context, is that for like for like years and years and years, they would have laughed. Like, no, you, you guys are crazy. You guys <laughs> are. Uh, you need to. You need to connect to this. You know. You need to go with the machine. Trust the machine. And they were like, No, we don't. We don't trust the machine. We don't trust anything. And and now, especially now in the pandemic, because you're stuck at home and you have nothing to do but interact with the machine, right? Right. And so. The people are are saying like, oh, maybe maybe the fact that I'm on 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 my phone or on my and doing stuff like always connected, it's maybe it's not such a good idea, or maybe this is like uh, people are like start to feel like uncomfortable, um, which is really interesting because uh, if you see how Zoom uh, it, it was really like uh, spiking in use. And I, it's probably gonna start like falling really fast, just because, uh, just because people just don't want to be on on camera like all the time. Like people are really start to get like uh, uncomfortable being like uh, photographed and just videoed and videotaped all the time, especially when they understand like people are recording like conversations because you know whatever people are just recording the work meeting or something. Unfortunately, I think that's a dying sentiment with our generation. The generation coming up behind us has no problem being on camera or being recorded at every moment of their life. Um, so that's something that we will have to educate people. And that's why it becomes more important for the infrastructure to be trustworthy. Um, because this this generation coming up, man, you watch an 11-year-old or 12-year-old play video games or play on phones and stuff. And it's it's a whole different world than what we're used to, you know? Oh yeah, I see my daughter. She, my daughter, like, I won't allow her on YouTube because she's <laughs> because she's eight. So yeah. I won't allow her. Like, meaning I won't allow her like to uh, to put stuff on YouTube because she really wants to. Sure. And she will do. She she will take. She has like a 
like a phone with uh, without a line, just to play games and stuff. Yeah. And so uh, she will do like she will do like tutorials, like and and it's insane how uh, how fast she was able to like mimic the the gists and like the the behaviors and the tone and voice of of like people doing it on YouTube because she she watches like stuff. And so uh, how quickly she picks she picked like everything up and she'll make like with her little brother she'll they'll make like a little um tutorial of how to make some some crafts or something and i can and i'm and i'm hearing them in the background like you're like jesus she's she's talking just like like a youtube person <laughs> it's so weird how how fast they stimulate it's going to be ingrained in the culture that we are all independent nodes in a uh, media infrastructure right and so mm-hmm. if you think about right now, how relationships work online, they're follower, uh, publisher relationships, right? You know, everyone wants, I want a million followers. Like, ah, who cares about followers, right? The next iteration of that is going to be syndicates. And so instead of a follower, you'll have a bank of syndicates. And those syndicates will actually be tied to the credibility of your network as well as the overall reach. And, you know, the syndicates will have part of the relationship because their responsibility will be to amplify your signal. Think about how a radio station, uh, maybe you record a radio show and you have 30 radio stations that syndicated or 50 or 100, whatever it is. And so this follower relationship is obsolete in my mind. Uh, what, what we'll need to figure out is what, is, what are the mechanics uh, to allow people to build a syndicate relationship with the people who are engaged with their brand, which is what community building is all around, all about. So imagine if I have a network of syndicates and instead of just following me, they plug in their YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and whatever social media they want. And when they syndicate a piece of content, I get access to their reach, to their website, to whatever. And now we build a reciprocal marketing engine that we all collectively own. And that becomes a real interesting model with which to experiment with in the future of media. You know, and those are the kind of things that get me excited about building community and experimenting with these tools is like, how can we all participate not only in the distribution of the content, but in the monetization of that content, you know, and how can all that be uh, attributed down chain to the participants of this machine? And those machines will become the new arbiters of trust. They will become the new CNN, the new Fox, the new, you know, uh, globalized networks of distribution, but it'll all be peer reviewed and trust based. And that is going to be transformational. And um, just to bring it back a little bit to uh, to uh, no code, I mean, actually, that would be really interesting to see because maybe that's that's like the real opportunity, right? Uh, mm-hmm. As we were talking earlier, to build that infrastructure, like the fact that it, that that uh, oh, there are always uh, more consumers than than producers, mm-hmm. right? Of content or, or the whatever. So that would allow the people who are more inclined to be producers to uh, just create the infrastructure to be connected as a syndicate and then somebody above them, like connecting all the syndicates together. It it seems like really interesting uh, uh, how uh, all this no-code thing will enable people just... uh, build their local thing or, or the thing or on their level in the hierarchy and yep. then uh, allowing and then obviously allowing uh, the the step above to connect to them uh, or incentivize 
the step above to connect to their specific um, infrastructure, right? Correct. And and, yeah. and and it's not necessarily important to own the infrastructure as much as it is to own the influence and the data inside of that, right? And so yeah, because the, the technical barrier is so low, no, nobody cares for uh, correct. Like it's all it's all maintenance and and content, which nobody really wants to worry about. The content people want to worry about, right? Building the content, but the maintenance and the management of the platform is not something anybody wants to spend any time on. And so that's where again. You know, you know, now you're starting to see the, the full picture of what really gets me excited about the no code space and and the potential and why we are excited about experimenting inside of it, you know. Yeah. Imagine being able to hand off these nodes and these nodes could look like whatever. Like I've built sites that look like the Huffington Post. You want to clone it? You could have it for free. Just go to my Webflow profile, scroll down. It's called the Stuff Post. Like if you go to stuffpost.webflow.io, you could have the Huffington Post website for free. Uh, and imagine if like once a month we just released another media major, uh, another major media company's website infrastructure. It's like, hey, you want to look like the uh, Rolling Stones? Here's a template. You want to look like USA Today? Here's a template. You want to be whatever? Here's a template, you know, and it's free. Here's the back end, the functionality, the member authentication, blah, blah, all of it. You know, the technology will then become us daisy chaining these things together and allowing people to build communities that publish on that platform collectively and build the value of that resource and build trust in that resource as a, as a group. And maybe it's in their niche, right? So maybe it's again, game development. And now the next Netflix or, 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 or maybe it's video producers and the next Netflix is not a centralized database. It's some huge distributed place where everybody publishes kind of like a YouTube, except for now your membership pays based on the, the content you watch, right? Yeah. And so as, as I watch your videos, maybe you get paid a little bit on that platform. Um, so I, there's, a, there's a lot. There's so much there to explore. Yeah, and that's amazing because at the end of the day, it's just about people making like, like valuable uh, content, like mm-hmm. making culture, basically. Correct. Which is so, it, it's so basic to the level like... Uh, like uh, I know it's like it, it was the reason that the people are must must uh, like started to mass print books, right? Because the the thing that they were printing, like the words, were were valuable to somebody, or valuable to a lot of people, and and that's the only reason uh, to move those things forward. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting because you see those cycles again and again. I don't know if you know because um, I was really into. Uh, there was there was some time when I was younger and I had really like interest in in formats like video formats, mm-hmm. and when you get into it, you realize that like uh, which is a little unsavory, but uh, the porn industry had such a pivotal um, like role in how uh, video formats and, and 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 that and video compression and all that stuff like works. Mm-hmm. And you know, and it's it's really interesting because at the end of the day, is what is the the content that the specific uh, community wants to consume, or what is the real value? Like, like, what is the abstract value that, uh, and how you can deliver that? And 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 the, it, it was now and then it was a book, a video file. And so the infrastructure matter less and less 
on the micro level, but at the macro level, I suppose, you know, people could be doing like really still more interesting things. I know it's re- it's really big, like uh, it's a huge topic. Yeah, I think <laughs> all all this stuff of infrastructure it's really fascinating. I think, and um, but at the end of the day, I think the the the, the big lesson that we can have uh, is that without like real substance or without really touching people on, on a very like basic level, uh, it doesn't matter how fancy your no code build is. Um, and, and that's, and that's why before you even go in, into like, you know, turning on your computer, you maybe, maybe you should, you know, talk to a few people, uh, go in the little forums, you know, uh, do some tweets. I don't know, go, go, go to Reddit. I don't know, do something, you know, make sure that you're in touch with people all the time. And that's pretty much like the only way guaranteed that when you're still building that thing, uh, is eventually is going to deliver some kind of value like later on. Yeah. I mean, but that's, that's always been true. You know, that's why, uh, again, going back to where this started is it's not about the technology. It's not about the product. It's about the problem you're solving and, you know, the people you're solving it for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's it a. a deep, it was a deep one. This one, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure we could keep going, and yeah. uh, maybe we, but you can come over again. I'm not. I don't. I don't, I don't care. This is more. This is uh, like a like an experiment in content, and so uh, sure. I would love to maybe upgrade. Like, you, you could come on again. We can talk more about uh, all this infrastructure stuff and and your book that. That sounds like really fascinating. That. Yeah, I don't know when the book will be done. It's uh trying to it's it's basically my life philosophy whittled down into something that other people can read. So it's kind of one of those things that before I die, I kind of want to put it out there. I'm, I'm hoping in the next maybe couple years to release it, but it's not something where I have like a firm timeline. I just oh, it's, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, it's all about it's all about like uh, moving ideas, right? It's like the basis of culture. Well, so, <laughs> so here's here's the um I'll I'll, I'll leave it with this um. Basically, there's a cycle that uh, evolution follows, that societies follow, and it starts to do with storytelling, right? And so the people Mm -hmm. in power tell a story. The story leads to culture. Culture leads to technology, and technology leads to more tools to write stories. And that loop then begins again, right? So again, stories lead to culture, culture to technology, technology to where we are right now. And for all of society, we all kind of believe the same stories, right? Whether it's an origin myth or a religion or whatever it is, we kind of had unified stories that we all believed in. And now we don't, right? And so now what we're seeing is that the stories we're all telling are things like CrossFit or fitness or, uh, you know, entertainment or sports. And we've all kind of like let these things into our lives as unifying stories and they create their own cultures in and of themselves. But we've never been in a place where anyone can start creating their own story and building their own community to validate that culture at scale. And now we're at the point where anybody can build technology. And so what that loop looks like in the next iteration of society is anybody's guess, you know? Um, But that's why the infrastructure we talked about up to this point matters so much because uh, if we're not in control of that, if that's a centralized system, I mean, it's going to be a, a massive oppression of, of, of a lot of people. 
yeah, sure, some people will get rich and some people will be uh, wildly wealthy and, and powerful beyond measure. But what we need to do is protect that potential for every person on this planet. Just like the, you know, going back to the American analogy, just like the American Constitution pretends to claim those rights for American citizens, although it's being eroded. Uh, and so sure. what we need to figure out, again, how to instantiate those types of checks and balances in a technological world where we all have the ability to create and build at scale. Um, and, and that's going to be exciting to watch. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's some stuff that's to think about there, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff. This is why I love this, because I this is this is like the reason that I made this. So I'm super happy that we had this really like super deep conversation. Um, so again, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, of course, on. my pleasure. Uh, it was great. I hope you maybe you want to come on again and we can keep uh, talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, I hope you guys, whatever are you listening to this in the past and the future, you enjoyed that talk. And uh, yeah, well, I'll uh, see you uh, in the next one. Awesome. Thanks. I'll catch you next time.